John chapter 10, verse 11. John chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The Lord Jesus Christ is speaking. He's talking about the second of the two images or comparisons he's making to that picture he painted with the shepherd and the door and the sheep and the sheepfold and the thieves and robbers. He's talking about the fact that he he talked already about the fact that he's the door. Last week we saw what he meant by that in terms of the way to salvation and 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 the way in which we live our daily lives through him. He of him is a powerful combination. It's it's done does it Jesus does it each of them seven times in his gospel. I am being the Old Testament Hebrew name personal name for the Lord. And let's continue. John chapter ten verse eleven. I am the good shepherd. That he defines the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He was a hired hand and not a shepherd who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand. He is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. Jesus repeats that. It's always significant Whenever something in the Bible is repeated, it's for emphasis, for reinforcement, for memory. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep, which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. In our passage for today, Jesus identifies himself as the good shepherd. There's one good shepherd. He tells us what is unique about the good shepherd. And that's the fact that he lays down his life for the sheep. Again, earlier, he identified himself as the door of the sheep. In his teaching today about the good shepherd, and we've seen this before and we'll see it again in the Gospel of John. We actually started at the very beginning when he talked about the fact that In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Those are simple words. He's going to do that today. Simple words to reveal profound truths. This is one of the ways in which Jesus Christ teaches. It happens that John was given the task recording many of these situations where he would say things that seem simple on the surface, but really go very, very deep. And teaches something profound about himself, about God, and our relationship to the Trinity. And again, he also repeats, and he always repeats to emphasize something. We see that even in the even in that formula he uses, truly, truly, amen, amen. There's repetition there. Again, to focus on what's important. I want to emphasize this, whatever this is. We are to pay close attention when Jesus repeats. 
We should pay close attention today to the things that Jesus repeats in our passage today. The most significant one is this. I lay down my life for the sheep. We're going to see how this was a surprise. It was, first of all, a surprise to those who were familiar with shepherds. Okay, But secondly, and much more deeply, it's a, it is something new that the Lord introduces in talking about who he is. This is really the most direct statement yet about the fact that he's going to die for the people. We're going to see in verse 16, he will also expand the definition of who the people are. Because, again, everything about his ministry, you see it in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You also see it here, it, particularly in the early chapters. It's focused on Israel. It's focused on the lost sheep of the nation of Israel. But here in chapter 10, he's going to say something to expand that. And we'll see that. We've already seen it once. Here we hear familiar refrains, the father's relationship and love for the son and vice versa. He talks again about the voice of the shepherd. He brings these things forward from what he's already said before. But one of the big things we need to recognize today is that the scene is moving in the same way that we saw last week, that the sheep were in the sheepfold and then the shepherd comes through the door and his role is to take them out to the place of freedom, to the pasture, to the place where they will be fed. We're going to see that happening this morning. We're going to see the scene passing from those confines to the sheep pen where they're waiting, where they have no freedom, to the big wide world outside, the world, a place of freedom and a place of danger. As as the scene shifts, Jesus introduces three new figures, three of them, the hired hand, the wolf, and the sheep not of this fold. Every one of these are, I guess you could call it derivatives, or starting with, for example, starting with the shepherd and then turning to the hired hand. We're going to see that's for the purpose of teaching things about the shepherd. The hired hand himself is not significant. Just like, remember, the doorkeeper was not significant. All we should ask ourselves, what is this teaching us about the Lord Jesus Christ, the good shepherd here, and our relationship with him, the sheep and the shepherd? He's going to talk about the wolf. The wolf is a is a picture of those things that are dangers to the sheep and therefore dangers to the believer. He's going to talk about sheep not of this fold. That's new. So far, he, he was addressing that picture. And I'll show it to you again. Remember, we saw last time. Ooh, it's farther back than I thought. The sheep are in the pen. They're one sheepfold. This week, when they go out into the world... They're going to Jesus is going to talk about another sheepfold. OK, that's not here. It's out in the world. The wolf is not inside the, the pen. It's out in the world. The same thing with the with the hired hand. The hired hand waits outside for the shepherd to lead the sheep out and then joins the shepherd. Okay, At least in, he joins them um, physically and, and he's got some role. We're going to see the limits of what the hired hand represents. Not an evil person but a limited relationship with the sheep. Unlike, again, comparison. So what ask the question again, what does this tell us about Jesus? Let me get back to where I was. What does, what does the hired hand tell us about Jesus and his relationship with the sheep? 
Same thing with the wolf. How does the wolf come into this picture between Jesus and the sheep, the good shepherd and the sheep? And how do the sheep, not of this fold, relate again to Jesus and what he's going to do, as well as the existing sheep that he's drawn out of that first sheepfold? All right, you know, I like pictures. Sometimes they uh, tell a story. And here I just want to remind you of the three new figures that Jesus introduces at this point in, in his teaching in chapter 10. The first one here is the hired hand. You can see that the hired hand is running. He's running away. He's running away. Notice here, we see in the distance, we see the sheep. That's a terrible color for this one. We're going red, guys. Here we go. I think that'll stand up much better. If you see in the picture here, there's a bunch of sheep. He's running away from them. Why? Danger. The wolf has come on the scene. And, and since he's not the owner of the sheep, since he's just a paid worker, he's not going to risk his life for the sheep. He's going to run away. That's the hired hand. Here we have the wolf. It's a different picture. We have the wolf again. We have the, the sheep again. Okay. But then we have a different figure. It's the good shepherd. The good shepherd is here. I'm doing a terrible job of drawing. Who cares? And we have the wolf. Now, it's interesting. The wolf can't get to the sheep. And unlike now, if you, if you want to take the picture, if you go off this, you go this way. All right. That's terrible. That way, that's where that run, that guy running is. He's running, 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 running away. What's the shepherd doing? Standing in between the wolf and the sheep with his rod and his staff, like Psalm 23 talks about. Comforts the sheep. Okay, the wolf. The hired hand, the wolf. And then we have, what? The sheep not of this fold. Now here, this is illustrated just for the purpose of illustration with different colors. Okay, you have, you have two colors here. I don't know which is which. All right. In other words, let's say just for the sake of illustration that the, the dark sheep here are the sheep of the existing fold. And then the white sheep have come in and joined. Great picture of what Jesus is going to talk about when he talks about the sheep not of this fold and then coming together and one shepherd and one flock. Those are the three new figures that Jesus introduces here when he talks about himself as the good shepherd. And he says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The figures that belong to the outside world, I remember the hired hand, the wolf, the sheep not of this fold. Jesus is going to bring these things together in, the, in a statement that's revolutionary for this gospel. Hasn't really addressed this yet. Revolutionary for his audience. And the fact that he's going to lay down his life for his sheep. And if you look at verse 15. At this, take a peek, take a peek at verse 15 of the chapter 10. He introduces the final person in this whole teaching, and that's of course God the Father. At this point in chapter 15, verse 15 of chapter 10, what's happening is that Jesus is stepping completely out of the picture. You know, first he had a contained picture in the sheepfold. The sheep were there. He was outside the door. The door was there. And then you had the, the, the thieves and robbers. Then the next step is to go out into the world and introduce new figures. Still really figurative, right? The, they're not literally wolves he's talking about. He's talking about something else. Same thing with the sheep, not of this fold. So he's still in picture mode, but he's added to the picture. Beginning in verse 15, he 
blows out of the picture. He just jumps right out of it. Why? Because he introduces the father. He's earlier talked about the father quite a bit. You know, back in chapter five, after he healed the man that was lame for 30 years, he stepped out and talked about his father and the relationship between the father and the son. He talked about it again in chapter eight. Here, he comes back to that subject. So in other words, he's talking about the father now because of what's been going on with the blind man and the, and the way that the uh, leaders, the Jewish religious leaders mistreated him. That turn and he started to use this, this picture of the sheep and the shepherd. At this point in chapter 10, verse 15, he steps out of that picture. And again, he's with his father. And again, he's going to talk about that unique relationship that he has with the father. The reason he's going to do that is because it's going to shed light on that whole that act that he's going to perform, namely laying down his life for the sheep. The father comes into that picture. And, every, and, and you learn a lot by having the father come into the picture. This week, we're in the place, they're in the place, outside, outside the sheepfold, out in the world. Oh, again, a world, a world of freedom, provision, but also danger. But now we learn that it's all under the watchful eye of the father. Even and especially when the sheep, when the shepherd decides that he's going to lay down his life voluntarily for the sheep. He does that in obedience to the father's will. He does that with the sure knowledge that that he's going to turn everything over to the father, including his very life. And he's going to turn over his sheep to the protection of his father. He's going to die. And then the father's going to raise him from the dead. So the father, of course, is integral to what happens from here on out. When that when he does this, when he when he's teaching about the outside world, when he's teaching about the dangers as well as the freedom of that world, when he talks about his father in that context, he then introduces two new, profound and completely unexpected truths, unexpected to his audience, unexpected really to the reader. The first time you go through this gospel, the first one. We've seen this is, whoops, that's the first one. It's already up. The first one is that the good shepherd will lay down his life for his sheep. This is unexpected. Unexpected in the picture. We'll talk about that in a minute. All right. One would never expect that in the picture, that picture we just saw, where the shepherd is guarding the sheep by, by confronting the wolf. We would never expect him to then, to then turn around and say, I'm going to voluntarily die right now. Right. Why? Because at that point in the natural world, then the the sheep are totally exposed. That was unexpected at that level. It's also unexpected when you realize what he said today in verse 11. I am the good shepherd. He's saying that he's going to die for people who those people are. We're going to see as we go along here in, in this passage in chapter 10. So a completely revolutionary statement. The second one is in verse 16 when he says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. That, too, was unexpected. For for one reason, shepherds always had their flocks in one fold, right? They wouldn't leave one. They wouldn't leave a whole flock out there in the world where he goes inside and takes another one. He would have one. But now, so in the natural realm, once again, what he's saying here is sort of unprecedented, strange. Why? I don't understand. That doesn't happen in, in real life, quote. But again, on the spiritual side, what he's doing is he's now 
for the first time, really, in a, in a, in a more or less direct statement, telling the, telling the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, that, as it were, the, 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 the uh, vision of who God's people are, which from time immemorial, all the way back to, from Abraham, all the way through all the events of the Old Testament, all the way through Jesus' public ministry, it's always been about the nation of Israel. Jesus said, I have come for the lost sheep of Israel. He, he would send out his, his disciples and he would tell them, only go to the cities and towns in Israel. And now here for the first time, really, he's going to talk about people outside the sheepfold of the nation of Israel. That's, that's remarkable. That's, that's revolutionary to the ears that were hearing it. Especially, remember, there's a good number of Pharisees in the audience when he says this. They, of all people, were the most fiercely proud and protective of the uniqueness of the Jewish people. I mean, all you have to do is think about Saul of Tarsus before he became Paul, right? He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He did the same thing with Peter. Remember, Peter, the last thing he would ever want to think about would be the fact that Gentiles were going to join the Jewish people in one, in one uh, flock. Last thing, when he had to have that vision given to him, remember? Well, you may not remember, but in Acts chapter 10, he gets a vision where he sees all of the things, the creepy, crawly things that were prohibited to the Jews from the Old Testament. Now the Lord says, eat. It was a turning point, a turning point unexpected. Why? Because sheep not of the fold of Israel are now being brought in. But the but but until that Pharisees in particular hated anybody who was not Jewish, hated the Gentiles, hated the Samaritans who were half Jewish. Those are the people he's talking to. That must have been a shock. He says, I have other sheep. And they're going to join the sheep from the from the fold I've taken you out of, and then they will become what one flock, one shepherd. Back in verse eleven, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. By the way, he he basically gives the essentials of the rest of his teaching right here at the beginning. The good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Everything else we're going to see falls out of that or expands the, or defines, further defines what he means by these things. We're going to learn new things about the good shepherd. We're going to understand the aspects, the facets of him laying down his life for the sheep. But it's all here. Now, he repeats this statement, as we've already seen. He repeats it in verse 15. Right. If you look at verse 15, he repeats. Notice. Well, look at verse 14 and 15, even better. Right. We're looking particularly at laying down his life for his sheep. But I want to see something else. Look at verse 14. I am the good shepherd. That's repetition, too. You see, he's already said that before. He's repeating Pay attention to that. This is the structure. This, these are the essentials of our passage of his teaching this morning. I am the good shepherd. Now, I want you to look at the end of verse 15. What do you see? And I lay down my life for the sheep. See the repetition? We're also going to see, and it's, this is important, when, there, when, when whenever you see a pattern and a, being repeated and then something comes in, the, then you also say, wow, this is something new. I better pay attention to that as well. We'll see that when we get back to verses 14 and 15. He also does it, notice in verse 17. For this reason, the Father loves me. 
Now the father comes into the picture, but he, but he says it again, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. There are two profound things. We'll see this next week about that statement. One being that the father's love comes into view with respect to the shepherd laying down his life for the sheep. What's that about? And also he adds something at the end of verse 17. Again, a revolutionary thing. So that I may take it again. Resurrection. And then verse 18, he repeats one more time. Verse 18, no one has taken it away from me. He's talking about laying down his life. He says, no one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I will voluntarily die. I don't have to. It does, if I decided not to, then, then all the Roman soldiers in the world couldn't, couldn't take me and put me to death on the cross. If I said no, because he says yes, I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. Who else has that? Well, I don't want to get into suicide. That's unfortunate. But that's breaking the authority to do that. See, he has the authority from God. He's totally in control of his own life. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. But again, that that statement, I, I lay down my life for the sheep, is repeated. We just saw that, and that's for emphasis. He's saying, I want you to keep that in your mind. Keep two things in your mind. Good shepherd and the shepherd laying down his life for the sheep. Because through the rest of this passage, this teaching, he's going to take things and, and kind of attach them to those two basics. And we learn more about the shepherd and why he lays down his life as we go along. But these are the essentials. Now, when he says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, when that's going to zoom into, remember I tell you all the time, little words can be really, really important. One of the little words that we're going to look at right now is for, F-O-R, for his sheep. He's not, he's not doing it to entertain his sheep. Okay, that for means something very specific here. Okay, the Greek word for this little word for, he, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The Greek word is hooper. Now, in, in this context, and, and actually most of the time that, that, that John uses this particular preposition, little word for, it means this, on behalf of, or even, even closer to, to what's ha- going to happen, as a substitute for. So it's a very meaningful word in the Greek. On behalf of, I lay down my life on behalf of the sheep. I lay down my life as a substitute for the sheep. Very, very important. In John, this word hooper, excuse me, is often associated with a sacrifice. That's part of the meaning. When when in John you see someone doing something for somebody else, it's often in the context of that person making a sacrifice. As of course it is here, laying down one's life. For another example, I'd like to just quickly turn to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, verse 13. This is another place where John uses this preposition, hooper, and I want you to see the context. Again, on behalf of, as a substitute, sacrificial. We'll see we see this right here. It's simple language, by the way. Again, look at verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that what? One lay down his life for, on behalf of, as a substitute for, 
as a sacrifice for his friends. Okay, back to the idea of a shepherd laying down his life for the sheep. We're going to go into the world of the first century Palestine once again. We're going to think about the picture Jesus has painted about shepherds as sheep and then moving out of the pen. They're following him. He knows them by name. He counts them. He brings them out. And then all of a sudden, there's, there's, a, there's a danger in the picture. It's the wolf. Now, and then, then he says this remarkable thing that the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In the, quote, real world of that time, in the natural setting, shepherds definitely occasionally face dangers from wild beasts and armed robbers, for example. David did in the Old Testament. Jacob did. So they, they faced dangers, but their objective was to kill the danger, get rid of it. The death of a shepherd was very rare, and certainly a shepherd would never voluntarily give up his life. Why? Because in the natural world, to do that would mean that you've exposed the sheep to the danger of the wolf or the robber or what have you. That's the last thing he would do would be lay his own life down. He's going to keep his life. He's going to take his rod and his staff, and he's going to do whatever he has to to the wolf or whoever it is or whatever it is that's threatening the sheep. So what's remarkable here, once again, is that Jesus intentionally gives up his life for his sheep when he doesn't have to. That's, that is something that's unprecedented if you're in the natural world. Because that's never going to happen. That would never happen. Again, John chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. Notice it says the good shepherd. There's only one. He says good. The good here is a quality of virtue. <laughs> it doesn't mean he's better at his job than anybody else. I mean, he has, he has great virtue. He's the ultimate, if you will. He, he, he's the one that the old, that the old Testament, when the, when the Lord, the Old Testament came in and condemned the shepherds that he had left as under shepherds who were who were uh, destroying the flock. He said, I will bring my own. Why? Because he's good. He has virtue. <laughs> he's going to put the, 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 the life of the sheep ahead of his own. <laughs> and that's why he defines it as he does. Intentionally gives up his life for his sheep. And he does it, as we'll see, in obedience to his father. He, he sacrifices his life for theirs. Now, verse 11, I've already mentioned this, important, okay? Um, it's the topic sentence. So I'm taking you back to English class in high school for some of us, right? What does that mean? Well, in good writing, very often you put the topic sentence first so people know exactly what you're going to talk about, right? And then you teach off those those essentials that you've laid out same thing here jesus introduces this with the verse 11 which is the topic which is the topic sentence i am the good shepherd the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep that's what he's going to talk about that's the essentials everything else stems from what jesus says here in verse 11 good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep Let's go back to the passage, and I want you to show. I want to show you exactly how how tight this really is. It, what I mean that here's a topic sentence, and everything that comes after relates to it in one way or another. Look at verses twelve and thirteen. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. 
and the wolf, wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and what? He is not concerned about the sheep. Now, you might say, well, this is talking about the hired hand. I don't see the hired hand in verse 11. No, you don't. But why does he introduce the hired hand in verses 12 and 13? Because he is making the point that this is what the good shepherd is not. It's still all about the good shepherd. He's using the hired hand as a device to say one of the good ways to understand who the good shepherd is, is to tell you who he's not. You'll see his uniqueness when we do that. Look at verse 14. I am the good shepherd. He repeats. Verse 11, he said it first, the topic sentence, the essential. And then he goes on and says, I know my own <laughs> and my own know me. <laughs> what is he doing? He is talking about the shepherd's relationship with the sheep. He's talking in particular his knowledge about his sheep. You see, he's the good shepherd, talking about another aspect of the good shepherd. In verse 15, when he brings the father in the picture, he now talks about the relationship between who? The good shepherd and the father. And he's going to say further in verse 15, that relationship has precedent. And that's going to govern the relationship between the shepherd and the sheep. By way of knowledge. Verse 16. Notice I have other sheep. Which are not of this fold. Okay what's happening. It's focused is still on the shepherd. And now it's the sheep as well. Remember verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life. For his sheep. See the sheep are part of the topic sentence here. They come into view. He's going to teach us something new. About who the sheep are. That's what he does in verse 16 besides the ones in the fold. And then in verse 17, he talks again, he repeats, laying down his life. But now he says there's a purpose. The purpose is so that I may take it up again. He's not going to abandon the sheep forever. He's not going to leave them orphans. He is going to take his life up again. See how that's related to laying down his life, but it's new information and always connected back to verse 11. And then in verse 18, he gives one other piece of information about his act of laying down his life for his sheep. He says, I've got the authority to do it. Right? Something else related to laying down his life for the sheep. And he received that authority from his father. All right. Now let's continue now. Let's go to verses 12 and 13. I'll read them again. I want to show you what I what what Jesus means when he's basically using the hired hand as a foil. If if you know as somebody who's the opposite, he's going to teach about the good shepherd by means of somebody who doesn't who isn't the good shepherd. John ten twelve. He who is a hired hand and not notice the word not not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep. Such a man hired hand sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. Verse 13, he flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I hope you notice how often that word not appears in verses 12 and 13. You see, see the best way to read verses 12 and 13 is to take a statement about the hired hand and then realize, turn it around, take the not out, as it were, and understand that the good shepherd is the opposite. 
of what is being said here about the hired hand. Okay, let's do that. First of all, notice he says in, uh, he says that in verse 12, he says he was a hired hand and not a shepherd. There's that contrast. What happens? He who is not the owner of the sheep. There's that word not. Take that out. And it applies to Jesus. What is it saying? The good shepherd, Jesus, is the owner of the sheep. He is the one who, who cares. He is the one who lay his own life down for the sheep. He is the owner, unlike the hired hand, who is not the owner of the sheep. Let's continue. The hired hand sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. As a result, the wolf snatches them and scatters them. Turn that around. What's the opposite? When the wolf comes, the shepherd does not flee. That's significant. If there's a danger that his sheep are facing, the last thing he's going to do is he's going to flee. He's going to remain. He's going to protect. He's going to stand between them and the danger. He protects his sheep. Opposite behavior of the hired hand. One more. Okay, let's look at let's look at verse 14 now. I am, he repeats, the good shepherd. I'm sorry, verse 13. He flees the hired hand because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. Take the not out. Tells teaches about the shepherd. The shepherd, Jesus, is more concerned about the life of the sheep than he even is about his own life. You see all the contrast. The way to read verses 12 and 13 is to take the knot out, turn it around to the opposite. That's who the good shepherd is. And that's the point of verses 12 and 13. Okay, let's continue. Verses 14 and 15 now. I am the good shepherd. And I know my own and my own know me, even as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Okay, notice, we've seen this the first time we read this. Notice that, remember the topic sentence, right? I am the good shepherd who, and the shepherd, no, yeah, I am the good shepherd, and the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Look at that, and then you come to verses 14 and 15, and you say, well, I see at the beginning of verse 14, that's rep- repeating the first part of the topic sentence in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. Okay, and then pass through to the end of verse 15 and you see, I lay down my life for the sheep. That's also in the topic sentence. But in the topic sentence, that's it. I hope you can see that in verse 14 and verse 15, in between the statements that came from the topic sentence, verse 11, he introduces, he adds something. And we're going to talk about that. What is he adding? So first of all, Jesus declares that he is the good shepherd. I want to just say something about these two verses. They are very finely crafted. What do I mean by that? What I mean is partly what I already said, which is now he's using once again, verse 11, the essentials, and then he's placing something in there. Okay. He plays off, as it were, the topic sentence in verse 11. It begins, I pointed this out, but I'm going to say one more time for repetition. It begins with the first part of the topic sentence. I am the good shepherd. It ends with the second half of the topic sentence. I lay down my life for the sheep. 
That second half seems like it's word for word, but I hope you notice perhaps that he replaces something. He replaces the good shepherd with what? I. Can you see that? Verse 11, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Here in verse 14, no, verse, hold on a second. Verse 15 at the end. I lay down my life for the sheep. What is he doing? He's personalizing it, right? And he's going in the same way from the image to the reality. Now we see in that description, he puts himself in there. It's me. I'm the one who will lay down my life. It's my sheep. And then let's continue. And I know my own and my own know me, even as the father knows me and I know the father. I hope you can see that that's very simple language, right? You might say this about people in a family. I know my children and my children know me, even as my father knows me and I know my father. Simple, isn't it? Not only that, but the the language is very balanced here. Okay, remember, we're focusing on the fresh material between the first and the second part. That's that's what we're talking about specifically. Simple language, okay? Also, this very balanced, what do I mean? The, the, The end of it and the beginning of it are just like the topic sentence. There's tremendous balance there and repetition. In between, there's even more balance, okay? Repetition, simple language. Notice again, what does he say? First of all, he says, I know my own. My own know me. The Father knows me, and I know the Father. See how balanced that is? Very much so. He's teaching something, though, very, very profound when he says that. When he says the word know, I know my own, and my own know me. The Father knows me, and I know the Father. The word, the Greek word here is gnosko. Okay, I'm giving you a little Greek because it's important today. Gnosko. What does that word mean for know? You could you could read this and say what he's saying is is I know that I have thirty five sheep, okay? They know my voice. The father has heard of me, and I have heard of the father. I mean, that's one way in which you could uh, trade. You know, think about that word. No, familiar with, no information about. That is not at all what Gnesco means. What does it mean? It means to learn to know a person, right? Like like Paul says, I have. I, 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 have, I continue to want to know Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection. When, Paul talked, when Peter talks about the Lord, he says, we have come to know that you are the son of God. To learn to know a person, notice, through direct personal experience. These, these people have experience with one another. All right. It's personal. All right. It implies that there's a relationship there that continues. And from that relationship is drawn knowledge, personal knowledge. That's what he's talking about. I know my own in a personal, intimate way. I'm with them. They know me personally. My father knows me. Of course, now when he moves into the heavenly realm, now we can see it in the most profound way and get a better sense of what he's saying about he and his own sheep. Even as the father knows me, well, how does the father know him? First of all, from all eternity. First of all, they share in the essence of God, right? The Father sent him. 
everything that the son says are the things that the father told him to say. At the end of this chapter, he's going to say, I and the father are one. No, he already said that. I and the father are one. Now, that's close. That's direct personal experience. That's an intimate relationship. That's the point. See, Jesus now begins with the knowledge, the personal knowledge between him and his own. And he says, and he's telling us through that word gnosko now, I have a close, intimate relationship with my sheep. Remember, the sheep here are believers. So far, he's talking about believing Jews. He has a close, intimate relationship with his sheep. That's where Jesus begins. What does he mean? One of the things he means by that is I know every one of their needs. I know their faults, their failings, their tendencies. I know that they that they will face danger and I will be the only one who can protect them. And the sheep know him. They know his voice. And then he introduces his father next. Notice verse 15, even as in other words, in the same way as drawing from a reflection of. The father knows me and I know the father. When he introduces the father into the discussion, that's where it gets very, very profound. What he's saying is, is my relationship with my sheep, the Lord's relationship with believers reflects the close, intimate knowledge that's shared between the father and the son. That's profound to to think about how the father and the son from eternity past had a goal, had a will, had a purpose. That once mankind fell, that that Jesus would come on the scene representing the father and that he would lay down his life for the sheep because that was the, the that was the father's will from all of eternity. And then the father's will is that he would take it up again. All of that is intimate knowledge that was shared from between the father and the son. Now he's saying in the same way I have or will have that kind of close, intimate knowledge of my sheep and they, I, they will know me. It's a remarkable statement. I want you to see it um, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 27. Matthew chapter 11, verse 27. I know my own and my own know me, even as the father knows me and I know the father. Matthew eleven twenty-seven. Give you a moment to get there. Matthew eleven twenty seven, all things have been handed over to me by my father. He says the same thing in the gospel of John. We saw that earlier. All things have been handed over to me by my father. And no one knows the son except the father. Nor does anyone know the father except the son. See, there's that knowledge, that intimate knowledge between the father and the son. Now, at this point, he hasn't he's basically saying that this is exclusive. Like I, have, I have a relationship with my father. He with me. He knows me personally, intimately. I know him inside and out. I know his will. I know how he thinks. Then he goes and he says, well, he says, no one knows the son except the father. Nor does anyone know the father except the son. But then he adds something. And anyone to whom the son wills to reveal him. In other words, it is also the will of the father and the son that those who believe in Jesus Christ as the Savior will also receive this same knowledge because the Son's own will is to reveal him. Father, I want them to know me and you 
the way we know each other. You see, I know my own and my own know me, even as the father knows me and I know the father. Well, Jesus knows the need of this sheep. There's no more urgent need than this because he knows the sheep intimately. He knows that his sheep need to be rescued from certain death. See, that's the that's the function of the wolf, right? The function of the wolf is to say there's there's a threat. There's a danger. It could be deadly. It will be deadly unless the shepherd intervenes. Okay, that's part of the knowledge that Jesus has about the sheep. Okay. He knows that about all the sheep in the world, okay? But not all the sheep in the world will believe in him, okay? So he particularly knows it about those who will believe in him. Just like in Romans chapter 8, we know that, 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 that God had a foreknowledge, again, an intimate, personal knowledge with those who would believe from all of eternity back. Doesn't mean he doesn't care about everybody else. Doesn't mean he doesn't love them. Doesn't mean that he knows them too. But there's something special about that foreknowledge that that the Father has had with believers from eternity past. Jesus knows that his sheep need to be rescued from certain death. Now, if we think about the natural realm and we think about the wolf, then we come into the spiritual realm and we understand that now the wolf is the threat of the death, but now it's the second death. They need to be protected from that. The enemies are sin and death now that are being on the scene, the wolf has been replaced by sin and death. And who holds the power of death in his hands? Satan. So we're we're ramping this up to reality, right? Spiritual reality. Not only does he know that his sheep need to be rescued from certain death, but he knows something else, and that is he is the only one who can save them. This is part of the knowledge that the shepherd has about his sheep. He knows they face the ultimate kind of death. He knows he's the only one that could save them from that. He knows that. He also knows this. He knows that the father wants none of them to perish either. He is not willing that any should perish. So Jesus knows that the sheep face a danger that could last and that could result in them perishing, dying, a certain death. He knows he's the only one who can step in there and save him. He knows his father, who he's now introducing, wants none of them to perish either. Why? Because Jesus knows the father intimately. He knows his will. He knows his wish. He knows his desire. He knows the purpose of why he sent Jesus. He knows all of these things. I want you to see that in back in John chapter 6. See, John chapter 6, verses 37 to 40. The Gospel of John, remember, is a symphony where you have a theme and a variation. We're seeing a lot of that today, but we but we see the same thing. We see where Jesus introduces something and he comes back to it. And he adds an additional layer. OK, and that's what that's I want you to go. I want to go back now to see what he said earlier in chapter six, verses thirty seven to forty, where he's talking about the fact that he's the bread that came down from heaven. Let's look at John, chapter six, verse thirty seven. Notice how he says it. This is the will of the Father. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. 
He is talking about those who would believe in him. Those are the ones that the father gives him and he will certainly not cast them out. He will be the shepherd that will protect them, will save them from death, hold on to them, keep them, care for them. Verse 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Knows the father's will, knows why he came down from heaven, knows that that no one that the father gives him is to be cast out. We're going to see he's going to talk about the will of God the night before he goes to the cross. When he actually says, Father, if you're willing, please let this cup pass. He's saying, he said, you know, even now I know that my that you want me to die from my sheep. But if there's another way, I still would like you to do that. OK, but then he realizes, no, the father's will is for him to lay down his life. And he says, not not my will, but your will be done. Saying the same thing here. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. That of all he has given me, I lose nothing. But I raise it up on the last day. Repeats. But this is the will of my father. That everyone who beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. It all comes down to the knowledge that Jesus has of the Father's will. Jesus knows something else about the Father. He knows that the Father loves him. This is this is crucial. Why? Because when it comes down to it, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's facing the reality of what he's about to go through, both physically on the cross but more importantly, spiritually, and bearing the sins of the world, he absolutely needs to be in touch with the Father's love for him. He can't, in other words, going back to the shepherd picture, he can't lay down his life except under the umbrella of the Father's love. By the way, there's an analogy to our own lives. There's times when we get into a situation that's so difficult that the only way we're going to get through it is by keeping our eyes on the truth that God loves us infinitely, personally, intimately. Okay. Jesus knows that. Look at John chapter 5, verse 20. John chapter 5, verse 20. This is why the son will lay down his life for his sheep. He knows that the father wants none of them to perish, none of them to be cast out. He knows he's been sent in order to accomplish that, to rescue these sheep from certain death. He knows the promise of his father, that he will raise him from the dead and he will raise up all of his other sheep. He knows who his sheep are, everyone who beholds him and believes in him. He knows that ultimately they have eternal life and he will raise them up as the father raised Raises him up after he dies. Look at John 5.20. He knows this. The father loves the son. Simple language, but crucial. The father loves the son and shows him all the things that he himself is doing. The father knows the son and the son knows the father. Father loves the son and the son loves the father. And the father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. So, again, just to repeat. This is this is the things that are known that Jesus knows. He knows that his sheep need to be rescued from certain death. 
He knows and they know that he is the only one who can save them. They know him. The father wants none of them to perish. Jesus knows the will of the father, so he knows this. And the father loves the son and Jesus knows this as well. So what's the conclusion? Conclusion is simple. Given all of that, Jesus must act. You see how all of those, the knowledge leads to a conclusion of action. Same thing with us, by the way. Right? The way that the, way that the Lord um, leads us to the actions, to the works, to the walk that he wants us to have is first to let us know something. You need to know that, that you've died. Okay, and your life is hidden with Christ. You need to know that you're a citizen of heaven, right? You need to know that God the Father loves you and Jesus of the same things. And then you need to believe them, which was never a problem for Jesus, of course. And then you are to act, knowing what you know, knowing that, that when Jesus died, you died. When he was raised from the dead, you were raised up with him, that you have eternal life, that you've been adopted by the Father, you're loved by the Father, you believe all these things, and then what do you do? Well, you and us, you lay down your life, or you present your bodies a sacrifice to the Lord. So it's knowing leads to acting. He will now lay down his life for his sheep, because that is a certain action that flows from the knowledge that he has. And not only that, but the love, the ultimate love is right here. We saw that, right? You can have no greater love than to lay down your life for somebody else. The ultimate expression of his love for his sheep, as well as obedience to his father. Okay, so let's go to verse 16. Because what's going to happen now, after talking about that relationship between him and his father, and how that kind of bleeds into the relationship between the sheep and the shepherd, he's going to put that on pause just for a little while. One verse. We'll see next week, he's going to come right back to that same thing about his relationship with the Father. But there's something else he needs to put in the picture in connection with laying down his life so that you see who in totality he's talking about when he says, I'm going to lay down my life for the sheep. Look at John chapter 10, verse 16. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They, too, need to be rescued from certain death. I must bring them also, and they, too, will hear my voice in the same way that the Jewish remnant hears the voice and knows it's the voice voice of God. The same thing is going to happen with the sheep that are not of this fold, but are out there. They will become one flock with one shepherd. Keep in mind, once again, the essential point. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. We've seen what it means and why he lays down his life. Now we're going to see all that he means when he talks about the sheep. Who are these sheep? Who are these sheep for whom Jesus will lay down his life? Well, he says, I have other sheep. In addition to the ones that are in the fold, there are others who are not of this fold. Who are these sheep for whom Jesus will lay down his life? Well, first of all, when he says this fold, I'm repeating, he means Israel. When he says, I have other sheep who are not of this fold, he means in addition or not. I am no longer talking about the remnant of Israel. That's what he's saying. This is this is a mind blow 
for his Jewish, Jewish audience at the time. In fact, it would have been an amazing thing for any of the Jews that ever lived before, you know, even though there's some promises that are related. I mean, Abraham was told that that his descendant will bless all the nations of the world in a general sense. But here he's talking, he's introduced the fact he's going to lay down his life. And now he's saying, I have other sheep who are not of this fold. And who are they is the question. Who are his other sheep who are not of the fold of Israel? And of course, it can only mean who? The Gentiles, everybody else, right? Of course. What he's saying, though, in the context is he's going to also lay down his life for the Gentiles. Look in John chapter 12. Verse 32, as we wrap up this morning, John chapter 12, verse 32. This is what he's saying when he says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold and I must bring them also. And they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. I am the good shepherd and I lay down my life for the sheep. The sheep now are one flock with one shepherd that includes both the fold of Israel and the fold of the Gentiles. Look at John 12, 32. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, when is that going to happen? When he's on the cross, lifted up from the earth? Notice what he says, though. will draw all men to myself. Jesus is the light that lightens up every man. He is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He is the savior of the world. And here he makes it really concrete. I'm going to die and I'm going to draw all men, all men, Gentile and Jew, whoever you are, I'm going to die for you. And you have the opportunity to join this one flock under one shepherd. And it's by means of believing, believing that Jesus is your is your savior. And then verse 33, he was saying this, I lifted up from the earth. He's saying that to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. He's the savior of the world. Now he is re- has revealed exactly what he must do in order to save the world. What does he have to do? He has to die on the cross so that they can live. Let's go back to John 10, 16, because there's one other remarkable statement that I don't want any of us to miss. Remarkable and unexpected. Look at John chapter 10, verse 16. Because up until the last statement he makes here in chapter John 10, verse 16, there is a there is a connection, there's a background that you could draw from the Old Testament. Namely, that when this Messiah comes back, all the nations will come and worship in Jerusalem. Okay, but but in that picture, the Jews are are first and foremost. I mean, in a sense, he's saying that the other nations will be serving Israel. But then he says something totally different here. Look at John 10, 16. I have other sheep which are not of this fold, not of Israel. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice. And notice this. They will become one flock with one shepherd. In other words, there's no Jew and Gentile. There's no pecking order. Right. They're one. They're all together. They're united. One flock with one shepherd. In other words, he will gather up both Jews and Gentiles and they will be joined into one flock. That 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 picture is not given in the Old Testament. 
right? There's always a separation between Jew and Gentile, even as the, some of the blessings that come from the Messiah of the nation of Israel also come to Gentiles. They're still dealt with as two separate groups. Not here. Jesus is saying, I'm going to gather up both Jews and Gentiles, and they will be joined into one flock. Now, what's happening? Well, here in John 10, 16, for the first time, I think, Jesus is anticipating the church age. He's anticipating it. Why do I say it that way? Because it hasn't happened yet. Okay. But he, is, he, is, he knows all about it. And he's saying something here as kind of a foreshadowing, kind of a taste of things to come. He, he's the only one who knows what that really means right now. But he's preparing. He's preparing him to think. What could that be? I wonder how that's going to happen. What does it mean to be one flock under one shepherd? He's anticipating the church age. And I'd like you to one more passage this morning in a church age epistle, the letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. This is what he's talking about. One flock, one shepherd. There's no Jew or Gentile. They're all gathered up together into that one flock. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Ephesians 2, 11. Paul, of course, writes Ephesians. He's writing to Gentiles primarily, and he says this. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, meaning that the Jews, before they become believers in Christ here, still think of themselves as totally separate from the Gentiles, okay? What, what should the Gentiles keep in mind, though? Well, he says, the circumcision, that's only performed in the flesh by human hands. But I want you to remember that at that time, <laughs> he's talking about before Jesus dies on the cross, at that time, you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. You were not part of the sheepfold, in other words, of the, of the flock. You were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. Notice this, you had no hope and without God in the world. That was the situation for that other flock until Jesus lays down his life for all the sheep. Verse 13, but now, what's the now part? Jesus has risen, has gone to the Father, seated at his right hand. The Spirit has come down, indwells believers. Now it's a matter of hearing the gospel and simply believing it. You are placed into the body of Christ. But now, and it's only in Christ Jesus that you, who were formerly far off, have been brought near. How? One way, by the blood of Christ, his death on the cross. He himself is our peace. And notice this, who made both groups, Jew and Gentile, into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. That's what's going to happen. Let's close. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for teaching us through your word and the words of Jesus as to what, what the significance really is of his death on the cross, of how much he loves sheep enough to die for us. We thank you, Father, also that we, we can understand the, the, the revolutionary nature of what we are now a part of the body of Christ, that you have joined Jew and Gentile in one body. And Father, we ask this morning that we would go out and represent 
our Lord maybe our shepherd so that everybody who is out there who hasn't yet heard the voice of the shepherd can have us witnessing to who the shepherd is so that they will be drawn to him. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Join us on Thursday. where We continue to study the book of prophet Isaiah and um, and come back next week. We'll finish this up and move on in the Gospel of John. Let's close. Father, once again, we thank you for all that you've given us. We thank you for Jesus most of all. And we ask now, Father, that you would watch over us and care for us and all your church. We pray for our country. We pray for the body of Christ. We pray for persecuted Christians. We pray, Father, that people will open their eyes, that unbelievers will understand they need a Savior, that believers will open up their eyes to the immensity of who you've made us to be, that we really are citizens of heaven, that we are looking forward to the fact that Jesus is going to come back in the clouds and rescue us. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Spirit. Amen.